Amen. They, Lauren started that accompaniment. I was like, that's the wrong song. That's not Oh Worship the King. <laughs> I knew you knew what you were doing. I'm just kidding. How about uh, Morgan doing it all? Singing in the choir, being super mom as well. Uh, there's no one else I'd rather have being the mother to my children than, than Morgan. So grateful for the gift that she is to our family and to our faith family as well. I get to say that because... I'm the preacher, and she's my wife, so get to do that. Uh, we have a few life groups that are studying the sermon text before the service, and today I got accosted in the hallway because the sermon text is so terrible for Mother's Day. It is not fitting at all. I planned the sermon series. Y'all are laughing because you were in those groups, uh, and you're like, what were you thinking, Nathan? I planned the sermon uh, series about a year ago, or six months ago at least, and I did not take into account these, these hallmark holidays of Mother's Day and Father's Day. Y'all know that I don't, I'm not real big on letting the hallmark holidays dictate what we do in here, but uh, just bear with me. I have a friend who's a, a, a pastor and a preaching uh, guy, and I told him what the sermon text was for today, and he just cracked up uh, first and foremost. And then he said, this must be proof of God's sovereignty that on a day where mothers are celebrated uh, in our nation, that our text is based on an instance where a man was committing grievous sin with his mother, or stepmother probably, but still. Uh, so let me give a disclaimer, okay, before we begin. The church in Corinth was filled with broken and sinful people, okay? And guess what? Woodmont is filled with broken and sinful people. And guess what? So is Woodmont Christian, and so is Calvary Methodist, and so is First Baptist Nashville and Second Presbyterian Church. Every church is filled with people who are deeply flawed and prone to sin. I was talking about uh, Wednesday night that <clears throat> about our sinful nature and that, that sin is not a very popular thing to preach on in the church, and yet the Bible, if we are faithful to do what we said we were going to do and preach ex expositorily, if we're going to preach through the whole counsel of Scripture, then we have to be faithful to the, talk about the things that the Bible talks about. So all throughout this month, we're, we're talking about holiness. We're talking about do we really believe that God's ways are best? If we do, the implications are many and they are very important, they are severe. If we really believe that God's ways are best, then we, we aim our lives for the standard that God sets for us in scripture. And we believe that anything less than that standard is what we call sin. And sin doesn't necessarily mean doing something bad, okay? Sin in Greek, the word is hamartia, and it literally just means missing the mark. If, if you're not hitting the bullseye every time, that's, that's sin. And guess what? No one hits the bullseye every time except for Jesus, which is why he gives us his perfection and he takes our uh, poor aim in which we continue to miss the mark. He takes that from us and gives us his perfect score. So with that in mind, okay, this is why we need Jesus, because we miss the mark and he doesn't. I hope that you understand that. 
And I hope you know that, that I did not know this was Mother's Day when we read this text today. Let's stand in honor of God's word, even the parts of it that we might avoid, that we might not want to talk about. Uh, the, all of scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and for preaching and for rebuke. So let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would, not need, to go, you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Thanks be to God for his word, even when it's difficult. <laughs> when people ask me, you know, Nathan, what's your vision for the church? People who are in this church and people who are outside this church will ask me, what's your vision for Woodmont? And, and I think they're looking for like a five-year strategic plan to grow the church or something. But my answer, honest answer, just in truthfulness, my vision for Woodmont is just to be a healthy church. And the natural question, one of our deacons asked that question, and, and I said, to be a healthy church. And they said, okay, good follow-up question. What is a healthy church? What is a healthy church? A healthy church is simply one that does the things that the New Testament says that churches ought to be doing. It's the kind of church that the New Testament describes as the ecclesia, the gathered body of Jesus Christ, who then serves as the hands and feet of Jesus in a world that desperately needs him. A, a healthy church is one that faithfully obeys the teachings of Christ our Lord. It's a family, like Rachel said, of believers who love one another, who obey the new commandment to love one another another and to care for one another. It's a sanctified body, a set apart, holy body of believers 
in which the Holy Spirit dwells and works miracles. We talked about miracles in our life group this morning. It's a community where the word of God and the, the standard of God are, are the guiding parameters for how we live and operate. So we're gonna be exploring this idea of a healthy church further on Memorial Day weekend. I'm sure some of you will be traveling, but on May 29th, I had a one-off sermon. I thought I was gonna be on a sabbatical, but I'm not. So uh, it, I'm just gonna do a topical sermon that day called, What is a Healthy Church? And kind of lay out a biblical vision for what a healthy church is. If you're out of town, tune in and, and watch it. Paul wanted this little church in Corinth that he had planted, he had helped birth this church. He said he was a father to them last week. He wants them to be a healthy church. And we know that, that this letter of 1 Corinthians was actually not the first letter written. It was at least the second letter that Paul sent to the church in Corinth. And these young believers had written him before this letter was sent. And they asked him questions. They were confused about uh, marriage and food offered to idols and how to do corporate worship services. And, and so they asked Paul for some clarification. And he gets to that in chapter 7. But first, the first six chapters, he's dealing with issues that he's heard about in the church. He says, before I get to any of that stuff, let's deal with all this garbage. Let's deal with all this stuff that you guys have been doing wrong. We've got to deal with this before we can answer any questions about marriage or singleness or, or, or worship services. He's gotten these reports of deep divisions, right? These, these popularity contests between which preacher is better, Apollos or Paul or, or Peter. Uh, you know, Peter was a real apostle. He, he really was in the inner circle, so I'm following Peter. Peter baptized me, that, so I should be the chairman of the finance committee, or maybe I shouldn't be the chairman of the finance committee. I get out of that because Peter baptized me. They were having these shallow arguments. Paul also had heard that the, the new Christians in Corinth were having a difficult time letting go of those parts of the pagan culture in which they're coming out of that are incompatible with the gospel, that are incompatible now with the things of God and with the standard that God sets. They're, they're not living into God's ways. They're not living for personal holiness for God and for the world and for themselves. In fact, they were still in that sin. They were still engaging in sin, and they were justifying it, saying, well, the gospel covers everything, so let's go nuts. And these aren't just bad behavior issues. They are gospel issues. The gospel's at stake here because this church is meant to reflect the good news, the gospel of Jesus, into a world that desperately needs it. And if the church is content with blatant sin, if the church is just kind of complacent and overlooking this overt wrongdoing, what does that tell the world about the gospel? It tells the world that the gospel isn't really true. It tells the world that the gospel isn't really good news. And it says that we don't really believe that God's ways expressed in the gospel are best. We don't really believe that. So our outline for today is about getting healthy, just getting healthy, God's people caring for God's people. If we're going to accurately project the gospel as a faithful witness from this corner to the world, then we have to get healthy. And I'm not saying that we're unhealthy, I'm saying that we're not there yet, okay? And, and guess what? 
We never will be on this side of glory, okay? We always have uh, room to grow as we get healthier. And if we're going to do that, we need each other. We're, the Bible's full of commandments in the New Testament for not for the preachers to do this, but for the church members to do this, to care for one another. In a healthy church, God's people care enough about one another that when one of them is living in such a way that is going to end up badly for them, they love them enough to call them back. In a healthy church, God's people care for God's people. And if we're going to get healthier, <laughs> we must start by facing the facts, by facing the reality of where we are unhealthy. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul had heard about an awful case of sexual immorality at the church in Corinth. Verse 1 uh, in Greek says something like, it says, it's actually reported that among you is, the Greek word is porneia, for sexual immorality. And such porneia, it's in there twice in Greek, is not even tolerated among the pagans. Porneia is an umbrella term that refers to any kind of sexual sin, anything that's outside of God's best for human sexuality. And I know that our culture is obsessed with sexuality, and so people harp on sexual sins and, and, and focus on sexual sins to the point of, of getting out of alignment with Scripture. And it tends to be a controversial subject in our culture, especially about what is God's best for sexuality. But the scriptures are consistent that it's either celibacy in singleness or it's one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. Sexual immorality is not anything new. Humans have always had fallen desires and we always will. Sam Alberry, who's a, a local pastor, he's from Britain, but he lives in Nashville now, and he's an author, and he's written books on sexuality. He says, we're all sexual sinners, all of us, because we've all had fallen desires. He says, one way to put it, and this is controversial, but I, I like it. He says, one way to put it is none of us are straight. Think of that. Next time you want to harp on homosexuality, remember, none of us are straight. Evan's going to preach more on this issue next week, his last Sunday with us. He didn't know. He picked the text. I was going to be on sabbatical. I said, you want to preach in May? He said, yeah, I'll take May 15. Uh, it's on sexual sin again, so uh, just heads up in case you want to stay away. Uh, let me say this, though. In all honesty, if you are struggling with any kind of sexual sin, any kind of pornea, anything that's outside of God's will, let me say you don't have to carry that alone, okay? Come talk to me. Come talk to our friends at Celebrate Recovery who work in this area all the time without judgment, without shame, without fear of condemnation, whatever you're going through. Churches have gotten it wrong, okay? The church has not historically handled these issues well, and we need to do better. We need to help one another live into God's best plans for this part of who we are and for this part of our lives. We need to show grace patience. We need to listen to those who are struggling. We need to love those who are struggling and really hear their side. We need to pray with them and for them. And then we need to try to live out a consistent ethic of agape love in a culture that is deeply divided over these kinds of issues. 
Paul says that in regards to this specific example of porneia, there is no debate, okay? This is wrong. This is disgusting, it's wicked, it's evil. It's 100% sinful and harmful, not only to the people engaged in it, but to the whole community, to the witness of the church. So point number one on our outline is that if we are gonna get healthier, we have to acknowledge the sickness, which in this case was blatant sin. We have to acknowledge sin to call it what it is. We don't talk about Bruno, we don't talk about sin, right? <laughs> we don't talk about sin. I have small children, you guys with small kids are laughing. If you don't get that, it's probably because you don't have small children. Uh, we don't talk about sin, but we have to call it out for what it is. That's what love does. Jim Collins, you know, secular book, you've probably read it if you're in business. I bet Tucker, you probably have like four copies of it, but Good to Great by Jim Collins. He talks about how all the successful organizations that they have worked with, they embrace this thing called the Stockdale Paradox. I think I've mentioned this before. The Stockdale Paradox says that you must maintain unwavering faith that you can and will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties and at the same time have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. David Gregory, you probably have Jim Collins' book. It's probably signed by Jim Collins. <laughs> the name refers to Admirable, Ad, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton, the, the prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. He was tortured over 20 times during his eight year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973. He uh, lived out the war without uh, any prisoner's rights. He had no set release date and no certainty as to whether he was gonna survive and, and see his family again and go home. Collins actually got to meet Admiral Stockdale and hear his story firsthand. And Collins asked him an interesting question. He said, okay, so who, who didn't make it out of the POW camp? And Stockdale said, oh, that's, that's easy, it's the optimist. And Collins said, the optimist? Wait, I don't, I don't understand. He was confused given what Stockdale had just said a minute earlier. And Stockdale said, oh yeah, the optimist. Yeah, they're the ones who said, we're gonna be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're gonna be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then it would be Christmas again and they died of a broken heart. Another long pause and, and they walked some more and then Stockdale turned to Collins and said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Stockdale would admonish the optimists in the POW camp, we're not getting out by Christmas, deal with it. The brutal reality of our situation is that we are more deeply broken, more deeply flawed than we ever imagined. And at the same time, we are more known and deeply loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. Our sinful nature wages war against our souls. Satan is trying to kill us. John 10, 10 says, spiritually, physically, emotionally, all these different ways, mentally even. 1 Peter 2, 11, Peter's big on warning us. He says, agape toys, beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that's what this whole section in 1 Corinthians is about, being separate from the world, called out from the world. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. They're trying to destroy, to defeat your soul, which God has given you to thrive and to flourish. And yet our sinful nature is trying to kill us. Let's call out sin in our own lives before others have to get involved and, and jump in and call it out for us. In verse two, Paul says that instead of calling out this guy's sin, obvious sin, the members of the church in Corinth are arrogant. They're puffed up, inflated is what the word means in Greek. They're so confident in the gospel that they say, we can do whatever we want. It's a license to sin. Grace abounds, so why not sin more? This guy's not doing anything too bad. You know, we're all good over here. I'm sure he'll stop by Christmas, maybe by Easter. That leads us to part two in our outline. The prescription for the, the illness of the blatant sin is the tough pill of church discipline. That's not a term that we use a lot. It's not in our polity officially. It's not really in our bylaws or anything. I don't know, Bill, if you ever dealt with church discipline formally. It's not something that Baptist churches typically have in place. But it's a vital component of any healthy church. We don't naturally like discipline. In, in our life group this morning, uh, Lindsay Raya made the great point in Psalm 23 that it says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. She said, rod and staff are instruments of discipline. And yet God's discipline is a comfort because we know that God's discipline makes us more like him. Isn't that a good Mother's Day analogy too, as our mamas discipline us? <laughs> church discipline is important for a church. Even though we don't like it, the truth is that we need it. We need discipline if we're gonna be a healthy church, because left to my own ways, guys, I'm going wrong. I need loving correction, and so do you. This is, this is tough stuff, it's hard to, to codify it. I had a mentor back in, in Birmingham who had two amazing daughters, and they went to Christian college, and, and one of them met this Christian guy there, and they got married, and they joined the Peace Corps to further God's kingdom, and, they, they moved to Guatemala and they were working with poor coffee farmers in Guatemala and they fell in love with the, the coffee region and then the guy's dad died. He was a wealthy businessman and he left him a bunch of money. He had a heart attack and died. And so they, they moved back to the States and they bought a, a nice coffee roaster and they started working with the fair trade uh, farmers in Guatemala and importing coffee and roasting it. And it was, it was really a great coffee place. And I thought, what a cool missional thing they're doing. But then the guy gave in to the passions of the flesh. He kind of went crazy and started buying expensive motorcycles and uh, trucks. And, and then he ended up cheating on his wife. And they, they divorced and it was a, a terrible time. And I told my mentor, I said, I'm still going to the coffee shop. I'm still praying for this guy. I'm still talking with him and, and hoping he'll come back. And my mentor said, I'm not. And I said, okay. And he said, I've handed him over to Satan. <laughs> I said, oh, that is interesting. That's harsh. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means necessarily. But what he's saying is that I've given him over to Satan for his own good, okay? If you don't know what we're talking about, look back at verses three to five. Paul instructs the members of a local church. This guy was not in the church context, so it's 
semi-biblical. He says for the church to enact discipline against a fellow member living in unrepentant sin. In verse four, he tells them, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, our, our fleshly desires, so that his spirit may be saved. The goal is his salvation on the day of the Lord. The gathered church is a very sacred and powerful thing. We talked about congregationalism in life group today. The, the, the membership of this church is under the authority of Jesus, and then you are the authority. Y'all make the decisions for our church. That's how our polity works. We are congregationally ruled. I think that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18, that when you gather together, you have an authority to collectively act as, as, as God's regents. You, you collectively act to do God's will. Matthew 18, he says to us, Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you disagree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That changes how we look at business meetings, right? <laughs> We're calling them members meetings now. Because when we meet for members meetings, we meet to do the will of God, and it's a powerful thing. Because the gathered assembly of Christians in the local church possess a solemn nature that enables it to do things such as when we hear the clerk's report, what we're doing is, is, is voting, well, we, we vote in members here on Sundays after I've talked with them for a while and after they talked to their pastors like Laura Haskins did and, and we had that process. But we also hear about members who've moved on and we vote them out at the clerk's report in our members meeting. That's an authority that the church has and does. We're working now on cleaning up our roles. You know, since COVID, a lot of folks just haven't come back. And it's been sad. And we've reached out to them multiple times. And we're trying to figure out how to do that in, in a loving, appropriate, healthy way as a church. And in a pastoral way that cares for their souls. Because we do care for their souls. In order to do this in the, the right way, our staff has been talking about what it means to be a member here at Woodmont. What are the expectations and more importantly, what happens when a member doesn't meet those expectations? How do we love them well? Is it loving to just let them continue to do something that we believe will ultimately harm them? Of course not. What if a member is not living the kind of life that honors their commitments that they made at baptism? Is it lovingly to optimistically pretend as if everything will be okay? To, to pretend that uh, by Christmas, I'm sure it'll all work out. Not at all. But can you imagine voting to hand someone over to Satan? Whew. I can't imagine uh, how that's going to work. How is that loving? Well, look at, what, again, what Paul says in verse 5. We do this ultimately so that their spirit will be saved. Paul himself was sent a messenger of Satan, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 a thorn in his flesh. Why, why was he sent that messenger of Satan? Was it a punishment? No, 
It was for his own good so that he could learn to rely wholly on God's amazing grace. God delivered Job over to Satan. Again, not as punishment for anything wrong that Job had done. God's not petty, okay? God's not vindictive. He's not tit for tat like we tend to be. He did it so that Job would prove to Satan and to the world that God is who he says he is. That God's character is, is right, that God is right, and that Job was who God said he was. Is it right and loving to let the person who is living in unrepentant sin to experience the full consequences of that sin and the inevitable destruction to, to come along with it? I think sometimes that's what this is saying. It's case by case, okay? You have to take it one case at a time. But I think what it's saying is sometimes the most loving thing we can do is allow someone to experience their own consequences of their sinful actions. And then maybe, Lord willing, we pray that they will come to repentance and return to the body of Christ. That's the goal of the medicine of discipline. And doctors will tell us that all the doctors here, Dr. Dunn, you know that preventative health care will help us avoid the sickness and the prescription in the first place. Nobody wants surgery. Nobody wants medications, right? We want to be healthy. That leads us to point number three, healthy living, maintaining holiness on an ongoing basis in the church. In verses six through eight, Paul tells the Corinthians they are to be a new lump. That's point A on your outline. Start fresh with grace. Be a new lump. Start fresh with grace that covers all of our sin. Old habits are hard to break, right? And, and, and their old pride, their old fleshly desires, they're like old leaven. I know a lot of you during uh, COVID started baking sourdough bread. Uh, Morgan got uh, bread babies from many of you in the congregation. We, you're only supposed to get one, but we killed ours a few times. Uh, we're not the most responsible bread baby owners, but uh, you know that it just takes a little scoop of that bread baby to make this whole big loaf of sourdough bread. What he's saying, and I love sourdough bread, so this analogy doesn't quite hold up. I don't love unleavened bread. But what he's saying is that the Passover bread, which was unleavened, that's who you are now because of Jesus. Because of the Passover lamb, you no longer have to have that leaven at all. We can be a holy church. I'm not saying that we'll be without sin completely, but I'm saying the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And, and the thing with these bad habits is that they corrupt us and everyone around us. Sin is never just between us and God. Sin is always communal. It affects those in our sphere of influence. But since Jesus has cleansed us from sin, we can be free from that power of sin over our families and over our faith families. Verse seven, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you can be a new lump as you really are unleavened now because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The atoning death of Jesus makes this new creation possible. I love how Leon Morris puts it in his commentary. The Christian church is not just the old society patched up. It's radically new. Paul doesn't say, you ought to be unleavened, but he states a fact. You are unleavened. This is what Christians really are. 
the implication is that they have no business to be reintroducing the old leaven. Finally, in order to live as a healthy church, Paul tells us in verses 9 to 13 to work together to purge the evil from our camp by holding each other accountable. That's point B on your outline, to purge the evil from your camp by holding one another accountable. Verse 9, Paul reminds them of his previous letter where he told these new Christians that they, they shouldn't literally mix themselves up with immoral people. And he says, you know, not, I'm not saying in the world, because if you did that, you would have to remove yourself from the world. There's always going to be sinful people out there in the world. But the people we spend our time with, the people who are our friends, they shape us. But the Corinthians misunderstood his former instructions. He's not saying to be an ostrich and hide your head in the sand, to be a holy huddle that doesn't go anywhere. That's not what he's saying. If you live in the world, you're going to interact with sinners, okay? But in verse 11, he clears it up. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, of brother, if they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed or all these other sins, not even to eat with them. The key is to distinguish between those we call family and those that are in the world. Brothers and sisters are to be holy. The true Christian fellowship is between those who consistently take God's side against sin. Okay, the difference between non-Christians and Christians isn't that non-Christians sin and Christians don't. It's that when Christians sin, they take God's side against that sin. They say, they go to God's word and they say, help me fight against sin. That's a, a big distinction. Non-Christians, even if they acknowledge their sin, they're still like, yeah, I'd rather have it over Jesus. I'd rather take my sin over Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have to fight against sin. I know a lot of that sounds judgmental. A lot of this stuff today sounds judgmental. And that grates against our cultural sensitivities where judging others is about the worst thing that you could do socially. But look at verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Did he, did he just tell us to judge? I think so. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. If we truly love one another in the church, then we will have the difficult, messy, awkward conversations that need to happen. We will lovingly and tenderly judge one another in order to help each other thrive and to live into God's ways which are actually best. Of course, people outside the church behave sinfully. Let God deal with their sin, but let's concern ourselves with the sin of one another. I'm, if I'm acting arrogantly or angrily or I say something out of line with God's word, please let me know. In fact, you're commanded to let me know. As, as an elder in the church, you're, you're supposed to hold my teaching accountable. In fact, again, the Bible tells you to hold your pastors accountable. This is tough stuff, I know. But as we move forward into the future that God has for Woodmont, it's important that we take seriously what it means to be a healthy church. And in order to do that, we have to face the brutal facts of our sin, both as individuals and in a church. We have to know what the sickness is, and then we gotta take our medicine. We gotta take the medicine. There may be some discipline in our future. Again, it's better to self-inflict it than to be handed over to Satan so that we might eventually be saved. 
And finally, let's, let's do the work of preventative healthcare, right? Let's work to maintain holiness in our church. Let's get rid of the old leaven and live as new creations in Christ. And let's work on knowing each other well enough to be able to hold each other accountable out of love for one another. That's the goal. That's the goal is to love each other well, all by God's grace and for his glory. Let's pray. God, I thank you that on a day when we celebrate mothers, that we were reminded that our mothers are the ones who disciplined us. And God, they did it because they loved us. And God, discipline is one of those things that our culture is really against. But God, help us to know that it's for our own good that you discipline us. It's, it helps us to thrive. God, help us to understand that loving, gentle, biblical, wise discipline leads us to you and to life and to flourishing. God, I pray that we would take these things seriously because you take them seriously. And because if we're gonna be a healthy church, we have to care enough to have these conversations. God, we thank you for the whole counsel of scripture, even these tough parts, that help us to, to know what it looks like to be a healthy church. And God, Woodmont has done so many amazing things by your grace and for your glory over the years, over 82 years almost of, of life in this corner here in Green Hills. God, so many lives have been changed forever by what has happened in this room and because of who's gone out from this room to be your hands and feet. Oh God, we pray that you would use Woodmont to be a, a lighthouse to be a place where people find true hope and healing, where people find fellowship in a family like Haley Hill did with the Duns, where people find mothers and, and brothers and sisters and fathers who love them enough to come alongside them and help them be more like Jesus. God, I thank you that we're all growing in grace, that we're not uh, arrived, that none of us are there yet. And that as you show grace and patience to us, may we show grace and patience to one another as we bear with one another out of love in all humility and respect. And let us be diligent as we pursue holiness personally and corporately. We pray all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We are going to have a time of response this week. Last week, uh, apparently, got to the end of the service and I dismissed everybody and Aaron said, what do you have against the response time? And I said, nothing, why? Did I say something bad about it? He said, no, you didn't do it. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, but it is important to respond to God's word. So whatever God has put in your heart today, don't leave this place without dealing honestly with it. Maybe the Lord's convicting you of some sin. Maybe you have so much family baggage that it's just crushing and you need to talk to someone about it. If you wanna to talk to me about it, I'd love to. If you wanna to talk to a counselor, I have some cards in my desk, I can give you some great Christian counselors. Don't let that baggage prevent you from doing and being who God wants you to be. Maybe today you're ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, I'm in. I need to surrender all I am to Jesus Christ. If you wanna do that today, there's no better time to do so than right now. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you wanna do what Laura did and say, this is where I need to be. I need to be in this body as a member and I wanna come before the assembled body and be presented
for uh, membership. If that's you, then don't delay. Come talk to me about what that might look like. Maybe you've never been baptized. We believe in believer's baptism as kind of entrance into the community of faith, into this family of faith. Maybe you're ready to take that step of a public display of what has happened inwardly in your own life. Whatever it is that you want to do today in your heart and whatever the Lord's convicting you to do, don't delay before you leave. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response. I'll be down here to talk if you need to.